Hello, this is Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and a huge thank you for all of your feedback you've sent us on our first few episodes. We've had over 400 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, including this lovely one from Red who says, I've just listened to my first ever podcast and must say, quite simply, fabulous. That's what we want to hear. Thank you so much, Red. If this is your first podcast or indeed your hundredth, welcome aboard. Now, this week, my guest is the author Matt Haig, who I'm a huge fan of. He's written some wonderful novels, but one of the things he's most known for is his book on depression. And he has some really inspiring things to say about it. It was something I was scared of writing you know, no one really knows who I am. And like, is it that unusual what I went through? And then I thought, well, that could almost be the point of it. It was incredibly intense and incredibly life-threatening, but also common. Just a little warning, we do go to some dark corners during our chat. So if you need to hold off listening until you're in the right frame of mind, that is, of course, 100% OK. Pause the show and just come back to it later. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. And now here's the show. I am a real bookworm. I love nothing more than escaping into a brilliant novel or a non-fiction and just getting into a juicy world of fantasy or fact and immersing myself in characters and plot twists like that for me is absolute pure joy. And I actually get the same sort of feeling and the same sort of therapy, I guess, from writing, whether it be uh, the couple of books that I've been lucky enough to write, but also just even jotting down a couple of lines in a diary each night of what I've done that day, how I feel. I find that equally as powerful. So I really want to focus today on the power of reading and writing. And I also love anything that bucks the trend of the the screen and the digital world. So who better could I invite round for a cup of tea and perhaps even a slice of hedgehog cake which I made my stepson for his birthday yesterday if he so pleases um the incredible author Matt Haig well hello Matt Haig hi friends. <laughs> amazing to see you I smell a fix because I've um you're feeling better I'm fighting off the yeah. last round. for people that that don't know so much about you the reason that I do and many of your fans do is because you wrote Reasons to Stay Alive which uh, is an incredibly personal book and before this obviously you'd had a string of, of other books non-fictions and novels but Reasons to Stay Alive was talking about as you say your own experience of depression and a particular moment when you were in your 20s in Ibiza that was extremely I'm imagining painful and tricky for you for people that haven't read the book can you just tell us about that moment mm. if that's okay with you and also 
how you arrived at that moment. Yeah, well, I was 24 years old. We were working in a Ibiza, but it wasn't like crazy holiday time because we'd been there since 1997. So this was our third year of having five months a year there. And we were living in a very nice villa, um, not paying any rent because we were living with the people we were working for. And it was my wife, who was then my girlfriend, who had the good job. She was sort of running the office and for this nightclub, Manumission. And um, she, she was the sort of hardworking one who had everything going on. I was just doing bits and pieces, like running a little box office and doing whatever was at hand and sort of being a bit of a waste there, drinking too much and um, staying out too late. But, yeah, there were no sort of indications that I was ill or mm. anything was wrong mm. until um september in 1999 and it was just one day and it was we it wasn't an excessive patch by abifa standards we'd probably been going out that week but on the day in question i had got up early gone for a run eaten breakfast i don't think i'd slept particularly badly hadn't drank anything hadn't smoked but um it was about sort of two in the afternoon or something and then I just started having this panic attack and I didn't really know it was a panic attack because I'd never had a panic attack before but I just felt terrible the first thing was I thought I was going to die Mm. and you thought it was a heart attack but there wasn't any sort of like physical pain so it was very strange and um, you think of a panic attack as like something you have for 10 minutes and you breathe into a brown paper bag or you walk it out and you're fine but this didn't end Mm. so I didn't know what was going on and it was a total um physical experience it wasn't pain but all through my body I was just sort of adrenaline overload and all kinds of weird things were going on and I had sensations in my head and I just felt totally trapped in this very confusing state and it was the start of panic disorder which led to depression but I didn't know any of that because I hadn't seen to a doctor I went to a Spanish doctor I was given um, diazepam which didn't help me at that point and I was just in a very um, paranoid, scared and claustrophobic state and made a lot worse by not understanding yeah. what was happening and not accepting what was happening. And I think that's why I became um, suicidal. It wasn't because I had a death wish. I was still massively scared of death. I've always been a hypochondriac. I'm not someone who... Um, you would ever, you know, yeah, wish that. I wasn't a particularly sort of morose, death-obsessed teenager or anything. Mm. But it was just fear. It was just mm. total fear mm. of life and the sort of mental pain I was going through. Um, so it was almost like you were suddenly trapped in a burning building. Yeah. And it's not that, that the idea of jumping out the window is any more attractive. It's just that it's better than the other alternative. Mm. So I was in this very, very scared moment and the reason I didn't do that um well I hopefully there were other reasons but one of the reasons I didn't do that is because I didn't want to hurt anybody mm. um but I had no faith in the future I have now I had no faith that I would be alive at the age of 25 I thought I'd spontaneously combust or something I couldn't see any future couldn't see any way out just getting home back to England um to live with my parents house again was like an epic trial of um you know just getting to an airport getting on a plane going back was just like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life mm. and yeah it was months and months and months after that being back home and, you know, it was quite a hard situation. Me and Andrea 
you know, we'd been students, we still had a lot of student debt and we didn't have any, we didn't have that many options because I had to live with my parents. Yeah. And so it was kind of a, you know, we were kind of sort of trapped there. And I, I was agoraphobic. I found it very, very hard to um, walk to the corner shop. Mm. I was a nightmare for Andrea because I sort of always needed to be near Andrea because... Mm. I don't know why, but I had sort of separation anxiety and it was just, it was a hard, hard time. Um, I suppose it started to change. I'd have moments. It wouldn't be any sort of great happiness or anything, but I'd have moments where I wouldn't be thinking about the pain. Mm. And that hadn't happened, sort of little little moments of neutrality, which um, it sounds ridiculous, but just like three seconds of thinking about nothing when you've had every single yeah. moment in pain... Yeah. And there was one day in particular, we were living in Leeds, I think, at this point, and there was one day in particular in that April where the sun was out and we were walking into town because we sort of lived in the student area and we were walking down the hill into town. And I, I just felt this sort of sort of sudden like calmness and it didn't last at all. But the, sim- the simple knowledge that I'd felt that yeah. suddenly gave me hope because the depression had been telling me I'd never feel normal again so just a tiny tiny little grain of nothingness became something to hold on to because mm. at that point you know we spent a lot of our life wanting to feel the best and wanting to feel that. all I wanted to feel at that point was just well or yeah. calm or yeah. neutral yeah it was years and months of getting slowly better and accepting the reality and it'd be going to doctors, getting different labels, general anxiety disorder, um, depression. The panic disorder stopped being panic disorder because panic disorder is just basically you're in a panic attack or you're dreading the next panic attack. And I got over that mm. stage quite quickly, but I didn't feel any better because I was in this new state of depression and anxiety and stuff. So it was, it was a long time and it sounds very weird because it was a sort of heavy duty breakdown, but I'm still grateful in a weird weird way for it because mm. I think before that like I, I find it hard now to recognize the person I was before yeah. the age of 24 I was very confused very self-conscious very um unsure of what I wanted to do in life mm. and it forced me the experience of being seriously seriously ill forced me to really look at what was making me feel worse and what made me feel better. Mm. Because without it, I was sort of, you know, numbing myself with alcohol and everything and I never had the opportunity to think about what was good for me or what was bad for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was all clouded. Yeah. Whereas now it was suddenly painfully clear. You were suddenly like stripped back like an oyster uh, out of a shell and you're just sort of like, mentally sort of naked and then you can feel everything which is a horrible experience but Mm. it's an educational one because you you then work out what makes you feel worse without a doubt without I mean to to have been through I mean that is such an intense period you went through just and the combination of what you were dealing with as well because you know I've I've experienced depression and I've I still do get panic attacks now but never together and never to that extent where it's you know it's all a big mixed ball of it going mm. on and you can't see the wood for the trees. And, you know, I, I just think it's remarkable that you've come through it and that you've been so massively open about it. And, you know, I thank you for that personally. And the thing I wanted to, to ask you about right at the beginning of Reasons to Stay Alive, you opened the book in such a beautifully eloquent but very exposing way, talking about the moment you were 
at a cliff edge and that was when you thought my life is over I'm going and you said that the thing that stopped you was love it was your girlfriend now wife Andrea and and your family do you think that love is the only thing that can pull you away from such tragedy yeah but in the very very sort of broadest sense of the word I think because you know I think it's kind of like well, A, it's dangerous to just say, oh, you need to have someone, because tons of people don't have someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I th- think it's more like a attitude, like a, a, a sort of a love for the possibility of the world and love for, you know, love as an attitude to life. Yeah. It's sort of love slash gratitude or whatever you want to call it, but just a a willingness to cherish the world even when you are in an absolute state of pain to have some kind of little kernel of hope Mm. that there is some good out there and um that there is some future to believe in and I didn't always believe in it but I think in those very very dark times I, I had the idea that well I didn't always feel like this so I might not you know so it's not necessarily permanent because this hasn't been permanent all my life so there was a, a me before, so there'll be a me after. And also, like during the recovery, uh, one of the things that got me better was, weirdly, to stop obsessing about getting better. Really? So Taking that pressure off yourself yeah, somewhat. Because I think it's very hard. Like, especially, I don't know, I don't want to sort of gender it too much, but I think, like, being male and, like, finding it quite hard to talk about two sort of male friends at that point Mm. I think things have moved on but we're talking like nearly two decades ago and you know I didn't know much about mental health stuff but and so I my brain translated it as just a weakness a flaw um that I wasn't sort of a real man I was you know ridiculous silly things but it was just about accepting accepting that and and sort of being proud of myself for little things rather than beating myself up because I, I found it so hard to go to a shop saying well actually that was intensely hard and you did it yeah Uh, you know what I mean yeah so rather than seeing it through like well a normal person can obviously go to the shop and be fine but you can't yet you did it so so you know that was Mount Everest for you yeah 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 exactly it might not be in the future yeah exactly So you'd written a load of successful books um, before you wrote Reasons to Stay Alive in 2015. Why did that feel the right time to revisit that period of your life? Oh, well, yeah, boring reasons, really. I mean, it was the first book I've ever written that I've been asked to write. It wasn't asked by my publisher, but I had a friend who slightly works in publishing who thought it would be good for me to do. I think I needed that sort of elbow nudge to mm. get doing it. Because it was something I was scared of writing. I was scared yeah. scared of writing it. I thought, well, you know, no one really knows who I am. And like, is it that unusual what I went through? And then I thought, well, that could almost be the point of it, that mm. a lot of people feel like this. And it's not like the most crazy um, story in the world, but it's something that it was incredibly intense and incredibly life-threatening, but also common and Mm. you know a lot of people you know one in four people have at some point in their life very serious mental health Mm. problems and it's possibly even higher so you know why not yeah but I think it's you know the thing that obviously worked out so brilliantly is because 
for some reason you are able to tap into that emotion so brilliantly and I've read a lot of different books about mental health and all sorts of wonderful spiritual books and different stories and autobiographical accounts but when I read yours it was sort of a bit of a game-changing book for me personally and, and loads of people obviously as well that are great friends of mine that have read it and there was just a way that you were able to sort of channel that into a book. It wasn't like we were just reading an account of it. It was like we were kind of there with you. How did it feel to sort of sit down and go through that process? Because it is extremely intimate and personal when you read it. Yeah, I was very um, certain of a certain way I wanted to write it. Because I remember being ill. And like the books that helped me were never books about depression because I was I was quite scared of mm, reading about mm, depression. Yeah, like everything was a trigger. So reading about depression and panic, um, and especially like the books that were around then were very dense, academic. Yeah, I mean great books, but difficult books, mm. and not necessarily you know books that could educate you about depression, but not necessarily books that could help you. Yeah, and I just so I I I almost forgot I was writing a book and just like remembering myself on a literal cliff edge in Ibiza and literally trying to sort of shoot an arrow back through time and, and find the words that could have possibly got into my head. Mm. And so I had a very clear reader. It was me when I was 24 and just trying to um, communicate. Yeah, that's a really powerful thing, though, almost sort of writing a letter to yourself. And, and that's why I think so many people have connected with it because you sense that and it is on another level, even more personal and and sort of cathartic to read as well as I'm sure it was for you to write when you'd you'd finished and you'd got it all out of your system and and the book was completed were you able to let go of some of it or sort of you know move on from it in a way that you hadn't previously I think so because that's what I've been scared I've been scared of oh no I'll be reliving it yeah but then I remembered well you know anyone who goes through a traumatic experience it's kind of always there yeah so so it's it, it, it is less reliving it because you're reliving it anyway. Yeah. You, can, you can be reliving it without writing it down. Mm, mm. Writing it down is almost like taking the kidney stone out. It's like mm. taking something out. It's externalizing mm. some internal pain. So, it, it, you know, I wouldn't say it's a, a cure, but there is a therapeutic element to it where you're, where you're sharing something. And I think this is why talk therapy is so helpful for so many people because they're doing the same thing they might not be writing it down sometimes they are but often it's just talking and um with me it was just talking it out writing it out and that was very helpful and I was sort of almost like taking ownership about these situations that I hadn't been able to control yeah by sort of remembering them the way I remembered them and putting them down in words and setting them in stone and it was something then you can sort of deal with and manage. And I think it helps a lot of people, whether they're writing a book or not, or just writing a blog or a diary or whatever it is, uh, just as a way to sort of understand themselves and just to sort of... Without a doubt. Themselves. It's so powerful. And, and and you say that quite early on in the book as well. I'm probably going to massively truncate what the beautiful words that you wrote, but something about um, words can free you or words can set you free. And, and I'd never really thought of it like that, but it is kind of that simple, saying it or writing it down. Yeah, and it sounds like... For, I think for people who haven't gone through it, it sounds like a bit corny or something, a bit too easy. But there, it's not like it's an instant medicine, but it, 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 it's about the path. And you're sort of like, our thoughts are made of words. So mental illness it sometimes is to do with words because mm. we, we think in terms of words. And, and taking control of words, writing it, 
I don't fully understand it myself, but there's definitely some sort of um, therapeutic benefit, definitely. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I don't know if you feel the same, but when I wrote my first book, Happy... I almost felt like because I was just being really honest, hmm. there were no secrets anymore. And that was a bit, the sort of darkness that I was feeling was almost the fear that other people could see it in my eyes, that, that I'd felt like this or that my behavior had been a yeah. certain way because of whatever. But just saying it and going, oh no, this is the truth. It banished all of those secrets and those worries. And, I've, and that, that was the really freeing bit for me going, yeah, I'm being honest about it. Yeah, I have been a bit weird. Or yes, you may be seeing some sadness in my eyes. And that's all right. I'm going to say rather than I'm going to pretend everything's yeah. fine, but they can see it. And that used to sort of, I used to get so insecure about that. And that used to freak me out. So I found just being so honest about it and even writing things down that I didn't really want to just banished that secret. And even with panic attacks, when I've worked with people, and done TV shows and stuff, I've said to them, by the way, if I drive on a motorway, I'll have a panic attack. So but don't put me in a car on a motorway. And because I'd said it, I was then fine. And I could drive about, not on a motorway, but around the streets. Yeah. And I didn't even feel a bit of it coming up because they knew. But it was that secret bit that I had to get out of the way, really. Did you find that when writing Reasons to Stay? Totally. I mean, I bet in your case, that a part, part of it, like because you're a public person and like putting it out in a public way, I bet it's sort of like, some sort of like freedom in that definitely Um, definitely uh, yeah and I think so I think even though I was living with like my mum and dad at the time and stuff and talking about it I think there's a way certainly when you write something down where you really can explain it how you want to explain Mm. it and you can really think about how you want to do it and uh, you know there were worrying aspects because obviously I was including real people you know, no one's yeah. story is just them. Yeah. So I was having to, you know, have a very minimum mention Andrea and my parents and stuff. And so that was a bit, you know, there's a, a little bit of discomfort there. But I think I did it in a sort of way that was honest. But, you know, the only person I was betraying really was myself. Mm, and, and sort of being... Mm, being mm. For years, I had this psychological block on talking about it. And you know, having to always pretend, you know, the things I did, like, in states of panic, just not being, even though you would feel utterly dreadful, like you're on fire, you would still somehow have this self-conscious part of you that would be so bothered what mm. some stranger you don't mm. know or a taxi driver or something thinks yeah it's like why 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 what you know why is that why is that moment of social discomfort or awkwardness worse than yeah. the pain you're feeling yeah. but it still is we're a weird species and we, we we're bothered about things like that we really are. but um yes it is it's freeing now and i, I probably do almost do too much of it now <laughs> <But it's just laughs> talk, like my twitter account is just one long therapy oh, session your twitter the best. never stop doing that you but mustn't. it's just like it's not you know sometimes it's too much and I think also people talk a lot people who think about mental health a lot and campaign for mental health talk about stigma a lot Mm. and the idea of stigma is always 
someone else judging you but often there's such a thing as sort of self-stigma i think yeah where yeah. you're like judging yourself absolutely or at least imagining what other people are going to say mm-hmm. so i lost a lot of friends when i i was ill but that wasn't because my friends were terrible that no. was just because i'd stop going out and not explaining why or i'd you know not want i'd not call back because i wouldn't want to deal with it and mm. uh, because I was scared of them judging me but all they were judging me was that I wasn't getting back to them yeah yeah it wasn't yeah. because I was ill so it, I think openness just is so helpful I'm, and there's sort of research I can't uh, remember the sources now but there's research done on about how you know just speaking out massively reduces the risk of suicide and things like that especially in men about you know getting help and oh, stuff oh god hugely hugely um when you were sat at home or wherever you were the day before reasons to stay alive was about to go on loads of websites and hit the bookshelves how did you feel because it's one thing to write down an honest account of what happened in your life but then it's a whole other for other people to read it and that's something that I have shit myself about (laughs) quite frankly how did you feel the night before that book was released well it's really strange I can't actually remember feeling that much fear. Really? I think what it was is, it was intended to be quite a small book. It was not a small book. The first week was quite a lot of media and mm. like it sort of had a bit of a viral effect. But before that, I felt of myself as a novelist. This is just something I'm doing as a little side project. Mm. You know, that might help a few people in that particular situation. But it won't, you know, people aren't going to want to go into a bookshop and ask for a book called Reasons to Stay Alive because that's just going to make them feel <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> but weirdly, it, that happened. Mm. And um, it had a very quick effect and I was fine with it and I was fine with it and I was fine with it because because you know uh, a lot of my 10 years before that I've been quite a struggling writer and you know I've been published but you know recognition wise I haven't always been there and suddenly I had that book that was breaking through and it was nice but then about six or seven months after that I had a bit of a crisis because the book was doing well it was like number one and I was getting lots of emails because I had my email address on my website and the emails were from a lot of vulnerable people yeah uh, often the kind of emails couldn't really ignore yeah and I you know I'm not a doctor yeah. I don't have um formal training of any kind and I was also having a bout of anxiety mm. for about a month. We'd, we'd just moved to Brighton, new house. I was sort of pacing around in circles and feeling tightness in my chest and everything and not able to settle or think it was straight. And I was starting to feel a bit of a fraud because I thought, okay, I've written this book um, called Reasons to Stay Alive, full of all this advice. And yet here I am having a panic attack in Brighton and getting back to people who said, oh, the book's been so helpful. And I was like... Why, why, why am I still this mess? And um, I found that hard mm. for a bit. And mm. I think it's also that thing of when you have a sudden, something that you do becomes quite successful and yet you feel a bit crap inside. Mm. So you have that disconnect between external, internal. Mm. I struggled for a, a little while with it. And then then I realised, well, you know, in, in the book, I'm not, I mean, it is self-help, but it's not in the sense that I'm not saying... As I, I don't think you are in your books either. I, I'm not saying like 
I'm my 100%. Yeah, I've got it sorted. <laughs> sorted yeah. person. No. And I don't think any of us are. But sometimes, certainly like those old-fashioned type of self-help books, often it's like you're speaking from the lofty mountain. Mm. And this is what and it's definitely, you know, it, it's a journey. And, you know, I still do get ill. And I have, yeah. like, dips for weeks or months where I can't do much. But the difference is now, compared to that first time, I'm, I'm never suicidal now. And the difference is that even though it's painful... You know, by your 16th, 17th, 18th bout of anxiety, that is temporary. Yeah, all this too shall pass. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, your, your depression kicks in and says, oh, yeah, but this time, but this time, this is going to be, you know, it's going to hang around, mm. or this time it's going to mm. get worse, or this time, or you're heading into a new age category, which is a highest mm. su- suicide mm. risk. Mm. You know, your brain just tells you any negative of information. Of course, of course. And, but, but I've got enough of, I've sort of cultivated an inner therapist who um, rationalizes myself yeah. and talks it down. Because, um, yeah, and it, and it's strange. I'm more of an optimistic person now than I used to be before I ever was ill. And people are so cynical in stories and music and film or anything about something sort of happy and with a happy ending. Mm. And optimism is sort of seen as sort of lowbrow. Or, is that quite a British thing? I always find it's a very know. British thing to be like that. It really irritates me. Yeah, it really irritates me because I think there can be as much truth and meaning in the happy stuff. Yeah. And, like, much of life is like that. Mm. But, like, certainly, like, I'm in the book world, which can be quite snobby and, like, writing novels and stuff. And you you really notice it. If you write a book that's sort of offering a bit of hope Mm. and light, Mm. then it's taken less seriously than the one that's... Isn't that terrible? Exactly the same standard that sort of everyone buys. We need that more. We need more laughter, more joy, more... Like, all of us do, because, you know, bits... bits of life and what we see you yeah. know, on the news and social media is really gloomy and we need to counterbalance that massively massively and it's not some sort of like escapist thing my optimism grew out of the most painful experience yeah, of yeah, my yeah, life yeah so you can take the luxury of your pessimism and mm. misery and i'll stick with my um optimism because i kept me alive and mm. it was right you know mm. I didn't die at the age of 25 like my pessimism was telling me and mm. this uh, Andrea didn't leave me and this didn't happen and da 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 da, da. so sometimes sometimes your pessimism's wrong mm. you know mm. you sort of touched on this a minute ago but you know in your novels and obviously in Reasons to Stay Alive um you have such an understanding of the depths we can go to emotionally and the vast spectrum of things that we feel as human beings. Is that now a gift to you? Like you said, you've got that internal therapist or can it be a bit of a curse because you are perpetually analysing your own actions? Actually, I, I showed a very early version of the book to Stephen Fry. And Stephen Fry is obviously very well known. I think I think you're having him on your... He's going to be on here. Yeah. On here and um, he's very well known for his mental health stuff obviously and talking about it and he did a great tv documentary years ago mm. secret life of a manic mm. depressive and um but he he just said be careful you don't become mr depression mm. and like even stephen fry who who's sort of mr renaissance man he does so much different stuff in different forms and genres um he he still got that label yeah and i think Labels are massively useful and massively important in that they help you understand yourself. They give you something to tell other people and mm. say, well, I've got, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you've got asthma or something, it's sometimes useful for other people to know yeah. a condition. 
but they're not so useful if you then start defining yourself. Yeah, yeah. By them, if you, you know, you have to remember you're not depression, you're not anxiety. These are conditions mm-hmm. that you experience. But they're not you. You're bigger than them because mm-hmm. you're experiencing them. They're just the little apps that you've uploaded into the system of you or whatever. But it's hard sometimes to do that. And it, it was a reason why straight after writing Reasons to Stay Alive, when there was a lot of pressure for me to do sort of Reasons to Stay Alive too, or, mm. you know, more Reasons to Stay Alive or something, I did um, a children's book about Father Christmas just to... Yeah. Just to go to the opposite yeah, yeah. thing. And just to never feel boxed in because my illness was very much about feeling boxed in so I never wanted to feel boxed in I'm I'm now writing again about mental health but I needed to sort of go yeah the long way around and also I think you know we'll all get labeled something at some point and we all Absolutely. do you know whether it's a job title or an illness or whatever but if you're helping other people as well does it really matter I mean how, how do you feel about because you have got this quite sort of you know powerful very respected revered role now within the mental health world whether you like it or not that's kind of happened how how do you feel with that and deal with it well I'm I'm fine with it I mean I'm I I I struggle I've all of my life struggled a bit with responsibility so Mm. uh you know because then it instantly comes on pressure so sometimes I turn things down but this is something I've got better at I saying no to things because Going back to the days of being this sort of aspiring, ambitious writer, I'd just say, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm just quite a power in saying no. And it's not always a negative thing because sometimes it's a positive thing. Um, When nice things come along like this, I say yes. But sometimes you have to say no to things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I, I choose stuff that I know will be nice to do and good for me. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then on to your novel writing, um, How to Stop Time is just exquisite. And I loved that book so much. When you're writing a book like that, first of all, how do you form your characters and... Is it, again, very cathartic to channel things that you've experienced, whether it be about love, sorrow, uh, anxiety, through those characters? It, do you still get that same sort of release from doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, fiction can be as helpful as nonfiction. Mm. I think sometimes you run out of reality and it's good to explore things. Like, for instance, How to Stop Time, the story's about this really, really old man who's 439 years old, but he doesn't look old. So he's got this secret condition which is kind of like what you feel like with a mental health problem Mm. so you you're you're something else in your mind and he's got all this experience and when I came out of my sort of like three years of feeling very unwell two decades ago that was that was like I was 439 years Mm. old so it was a way of conveying that because um yeah I definitely think so I think I think writing um stories and fiction and reading stories and fiction gives yeah. you a space and gets, gives you a room to explore things that you can't necessarily do in reality so sometimes there's more truth in fiction because reality sort of stops you off exploring your own yeah yeah stuff. and what's that writing process like for you how do you kind of get in the zone to you know you have a spark of an idea how does it form from there the early stage is quite tricky because I, I never know which idea to choose. So I'll have like a, a four open Word documents and sort of flit between them um, unfaithfully between the different stories. And then it's a case of, it's almost like a sort of X Factor final of ideas where, <laughs> where it's the one that ends up mm. staying to the final round. And um, it's it's never necessarily what you expect. I didn't expect How to Stop Time to be the one. There was this other book I was writing about parallel lives, which didn't happen. And um, 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm writing, uh, going to be writing some fiction soon, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, I love that book so, so much. Do you get the same sort of feeling when, when you read other people's novels? And what books for you over the years have, I know you couldn't read particularly mm. when, you, when you weren't very well, but what books have been game-changing to you over the years? Yeah, I mean, all kinds of weird things that you wouldn't think would necessarily... The Tractor be- Catalogue. The tractor catalogue, definitely. There was this American guy who, who who's no longer alive, but in the eighties he was like the American Brian Cox, who did a lot to popularise um, physics and space. Called Carl Sagan, who um, he also wrote the novel version of the film Contact, which was made into a film with Jodie Foster in the 90s, I think. But anyway, Carl Sagan wrote a book called Cosmos, which is very easy to read, but it's one of those books that um, you read and after you've finished it, you feel three times as intelligent as before you started the book and it, it and you feel and it, you haven't noticed yourself learning stuff but you have just because you're so sort of clear at telling it and it, it's a one of those books that's about sort of life the universe and everything and it, it is about ancient egypt and hieroglyphics and uh, he manages to connect everything and what i like about books like that you know as someone who was terrible literally terrible at science at school is they they make you see the beauty of science but also they make you feel small beautifully small in the order of things in terms of space and in terms of time and i feel like a lot of our problems is we 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 lack that perspective Mm. that big large cosmic perspective and we can get so wrapped up in our own minds and stuff it's kind of nice books are a way to sort of lessen that i certainly like that book in particular but yeah all kinds of things when i was a teenager um there was a writer called essie hinton who um, wrote books like The Outsiders and Rumblefish, both of which were made into films. And um, but they were good because it was about sort of teenage boys. And I, I, there was one point where I moved school and I didn't have any sort of new friends. And the characters in the book became my friends. Mm. So there were friends you could pull off from a shelf. And uh, yeah, books have all kinds of uses. There's a writer called Jeanette Winston, who, um, who's always been great, who's got sort of like real force in every single sentence um old american poet emily dickinson her poems are just sort of like magical they're so short and she uses such simple words but you you can get something absolutely new every time Mm. and from reading your books time age and space and love and sorrow seem to be real big markers for you in life and seem to have a lot of importance and weight behind them. Is that, again, something that you kind of realised after you'd got better? Yeah, through the process of recovery, because there's, like, no clear line. You know, although there was a very clear line with me when I became ill, the line about getting better was always a bit blurred because Mm. better became this active process of feeling comparatively better than the day before, but not in a... So I think it was all about the recovery and part of my recovery was just this acceptance and um, this was particularly true on the anxiety side. I think depression's a little bit trickier but on the anxiety side of things it was very much the case of just accepting things. Like even I, I still occasionally have a panic attack if I'm really tired and like can't be my own mm. therapist but now sometimes I feel what would have once been a panic attack and I just kind of like open the door and let it in Mm. and pretend to myself I can't quite fully do it but if you even just try to pretend to yourself to want it Mm, mm. as a test Mm. 
as like I said, a, like a face bu- up to it, face mm. up to it. Bush took a trial. Mm. It, it's like you're just going to do this horrible thing. Yeah, and it's going to be character building, and you're going to see how you handle it. Yeah, and if you do that. Often it just sort of goes through. Rather than, rather than sort of firefighting it. and Firefighting it. Yeah, and lots of our language, and it's no one's fault, that's just the way we speak, but lots of our language of illness is about battling yeah, and fighting. Yeah, struggling through. Fighting, which yeah. creates a sort of game of winners and losers. Yeah, and I agree. It's hard, that one. Yeah, it's hard. We all sort of do that. But mm. it's just, it, it, it is more about accepting and just sort of understanding and, and occasionally just sort of bringing it on or willing it because it's part of who you are and and it's not always the case and often there's little sort of like brain chemistry um quirks about us that we don't understand but sometimes anxiety is telling us something sometimes Mm, sometimes mm. it's saying oh the way you're living or thinking at that particular point you know is probably not that healthy about Mm, something mm. so you know on those rare occasions you can find that oh i've definitely had that like especially with panic attacks it was like oh, I'm trying to do too much, I'm exhausted yeah. and I'm trying to please everyone and that has to stop. And it's been quite like clear for me, those those moments. Not so much with depression, but anxiety, absolutely, or panic attacks. Yep, that needs... And, and you're forced to take a look at everything yeah. around you rather than just, you know, trying to plod through or, or work through it. How social media with your mental health? Do you find social media? Um, I'll look occasionally, but I can't be... If I'm on it for, like, you know, scrolling through for no reason, you go into that sort of autopilot state of just looking at sort of flashing images. I'm getting a bit of a kick from it. I'm a bit high from it. And then I will feel instantly horrendous, awful. And sometimes I'll still do it and think, what? I know this doesn't work for me. Why am I doing it? So I have to give myself little rules of, you know, when I could look or when is a bad time to look. Or I know that I'm only looking because I already feel bad and I'm going to feel worse and I'm punishing myself or whatever so I definitely you know I know reading a book I will feel amazing even if it's a book that I'm not necessarily connecting with I'll feel great after it's like forcing yourself to go for a run even if you don't fancy it I know I'll feel good after that's how it works for me how about you yeah absolutely I mean on the the sort of like internet thing I get I do get addicted I find like Mm. Twitter's my thing um you know I'm on Facebook and Instagram but not in a big way but twitter i get sort of like caught up in it sometimes and it's very sort of hostile and argumentative and it's not very good i think only talking to avatars in your life yeah yeah it's not a a great thing and especially like twitter where you literally you you hardly know anything about Mm. the people at all and often they don't even have a picture and so you don't know who you're talking to it's not all equal some social media is worse for some people than other social media and so you know there's good things about social media for mental health i mean i think if i'd have had it when i first became ill it would have been a nice way to find out what i've got and yes i wasn't alone yeah so there are definitely good things but it's about moderation i mean now we're in a stage like in 2018 where you've got a lot of these sort of silicon valley top technology people themselves warning about it like Mm. i've done some research and like the guy who invented the like button on facebook now himself has so worried about his own social media addiction he set parental controls on his own phone to lock himself out like he's a child because he can't control himself and he invented the like button so it's all his fault he's like dr frankenstein and um what else is that like like, bonkers isn't it the guy uh the head of apple was recently uh tim cook i think head of apple who was recently here in england and he was talking to a school of students in essex he was saying that he doesn't think teenagers should be on social media Mm. he says 
adults shouldn't be on technology all the time. You know, this is the head of Apple saying yeah. it. You've got, head of, uh, you've got Twitter people saying similar things. So I think there's an awareness. And they all send them to uh, their kids to schools without um, technology. Mm. In Silicon Valley, they all send them to sort of Steiner schools and stuff. So it's, it's kind of interesting. But I think we're at a point now where we're starting to realise that progress is more than just technological progress. Mm, absolutely. It's more than just waiting in line for the next iPhone. Yeah. It's more about ourselves. And, and actually realising that biologically and stuff, we don't progress. We're still cave people from 30,000 years yeah. ago, living in a world of 24-hour Tesco's and everything else. Don't we have to like grab hold of the joy and the hope that books have been around for so many yeah. years and they're still as relevant and lusted after even in this digital world exactly. I'd rather well, have a book than anything absolutely and the, the, they are technology they're 5,000 year old technology mm. and what's interesting with books is like I mean I'm not anti-Kindle and I, I have a, a, a Kindle and e-reader and it's useful for some things but what's interesting is actually real book sales in line with Kindle are, are going up mm, again because mm. everyone thought they were going to be sort of replaced by and everyone would be reading on their phones or on e-readers and that's not happening so i think there's a sort of turning away as with people buying vinyl or whatever mm. i think people are craving that kind of physical so glad. relation tactile relationship with. that makes me feel so happy and also when you love books and you talk to other i've got lots of bookwormy friends like me and it is such a joy to sort of get lost in that world rather than online you know there are yeah. great things online like you say and i and i love social media because it's connective and and yeah. you know and writing the books has allowed me to talk to lots of people that i would have never been able to speak to but i think you've got to balance it out with something Absolutely. else and well we're all going to get a lot of neck problems oh my god and, and our thumbs move so quickly and they're so <laughs> agile and they shouldn't yeah, be yeah i do I, I, sometimes you do get i, I realize i've been i mean it's partly to do with writing on a computer as well but when you sort of like get wrist ache and you you get little injuries mm. from that. Repetitive <laughs> strain that injury. You just sort of slouch on the sofa, just there. and it's yeah, it's kind of scary because we haven't worked out. We're twenty years ago. This wasn't a situation, so no one knows no the one consequences. Knows. And as a parent, you think, well, like, I'm quite a good parent. I see the kids a lot. I'm at home with them a lot, and, and then you think, yeah, but I'm spending a lot. It's the new thing that kids are going to moan about their parents. Yeah. Be. You know, when they're in talking to their robot therapist in the year twenty fifty, <laughs> are they going to be saying? Yeah, he just, he loved the computer more than me. You know. God, it's so, but it is weird, isn't it? Because also I've got teenage stepkids and I know your kids yeah. will be teenagers in a few years and, and we don't quite know the rule book as to how to educate them as to how to live with social media in, yeah. in a way that isn't going to impact their mental health in a bad way or isn't going to make them feel lesser than they are. And we're figuring that out for ourselves. Let alone, you know, we Absolutely, because you, to to be, you don't want to be them. totally like authoritarian. I no. mean, this is the new world we're in. But at the same time, it's also like, well, there are psychological issues. And that, mm. it, interesting, I can't remember, I think I saw it in The Guardian or something. But there's a lot of research now being done among teenagers, mm -mm. not just about them, but teenagers themselves responding to things. And, and they're actually the generation, the generation younger than millennials, the new generation coming up, they are more aware than any of us of um, the potential mental health problems yeah. with uh, it, and ha having to sort of have these digital detoxes and go mm. away. Maybe it'll all implode and we'll just have no screens from <laughs> yeah, 20 years maybe on. Maybe there'll be a, yeah, a sort of revolution. Yeah. 
We can hope. Yeah, you never know. Well, look, Matt, it's been so wonderful talking to you today. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and your words and popping around for a cup of tea. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you, Fern. What a brilliant man. I feel so lucky to have had him pop round to my house for a cup of tea and to just share so many stories and to be so very honest. Thank you so much, Matt. If you think this little chat might help someone, then please do share it with them. And do check out Matt's books, particularly How to Stop Time and, of course, Reasons to Stay Alive. Now, if you've been affected by anything in this podcast, please, please talk about it with someone. If that's tricky for you at the moment, you can always talk in confidence to the Samaritans at any time on 116123. That's 116123 in the UK. And we've details for other locations in our show notes. Thanks so much to Matt. Thanks to the producers, Matt Hill and Lucy Dearlove at Rethink Audio. And of course, to you lovely lot for listening. I'll see you soon. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.